and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, soon to be, very soon to be, the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined this week for a discussion of William Faulkner's A Rose for Emily by Heidi White and Jonathan Rogers. Heidi and Jonathan, how's it going? It's going great. Although yep, I'm a little sad great. that I missed the the Cersei conference last week. I've seen the pictures, saw you know where all the cool kids were hanging out, and felt a little left out. <laughs> We missed you. You would have loved it. It was the best. I always feel like I'm just getting back from summer camp. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I was the cook. Hit with a truck? (laughs) (laughs) the cook. (laughs) I had the hairnet on. I was behind there. Everyone was telling weird stories about me. That's a good metaphor. That's a little bit what it was like. (laughs) Right. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, what does, y- so, well, you are a teacher slash writer, writer slash teacher. Which do you put first in your personal biography? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess writer. Uh, I don't know. I, that, no, I, I don't know. I'm just <laughs> sort of involved in, in writing coming and going, you know, <laughs> myself or having, helping other people do it. So it's not a slash. It's a hyphen. You're a writer teacher. There you go. Yeah. So what does summer look like for, for you? I mean, do you, are you a vacationer or are you just kind of hunker down and try to get as much writing done when you're not teaching or are you teaching summer classes? What is, what does, uh, well, you know, I keep my online classes going in the summer okay. and, um, I mean, that's when I do, you know, more online teaching and, uh, and this summer just been swallowed up with, I'm trying to record a new online course called grammar for writers. Mm. And, um, so I've been very thankful that the weeks you've invited me to be involved has been short, you know, very short, short stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would be in trouble if, if you'd invited me for, you know, crime and punishment or something. <laughs> I would never invite anyone for that. Um, great book, but I don't think it's great. I don't think it's ideal for this show. Um, Heidi, so you told me the other day that your children are at Shakespeare camp for which I, uh-huh. of course, made fun of you and then admitted that I also would like to go. Um, but <laughs> so are you, does that mean you're... Like when you say Shakespeare camp, are you, is that just a day camp thing? Yes, it's so fun. They are having the best time. In fact, their performances tonight, they're doing scenes from Twelfth Night. So I put them in Shakespeare camp at a, at the local university because I was at the national conference, at the Cersei National Conference, and my husband still had to go to work. And so I thought, oh, we'll put them in this, you know, great cultural thing. So it lasts two weeks. So then I, I got back from the national conference and my kids were still in camp and I've just been kind of wandering around bumping into walls. <laughs> so, <laughs> Purposeless. That's not true. I've had fun. I went golfing. So that, um, we, <laughs> yes. So anyway, they are at Shakespeare camp. They're having the best time. And Jack is indeed Duke Orsino in his performance mm. tonight. And so he's been cramming for his lines and having fun. And Lucy, who's nine. So one of the younger ones, she's officer number one. So she did not have as much glory, but she's oh, also hey. going to be awesome. <laughs> Officer number one is one of those underestimated roles. That's a, yeah. That's, I mean, it's solid. Key. She's got a good line about Duke Orsino's nephew losing his leg. And she's really excited about that. So, and you know, yes. officer number one, <laughs> if, if they don't pull their job off, everything falls yeah. apart that's you know right. that is what the director tells us every if, time there's no yeah. small parts you're like you are a liar there are small parts <laughs> yeah. although i love that she's got that kind of flannery o'connor line about the you know the, the leg yes yeah, thank you there's a bible salesman so or no yes <laughs> he's a bible salesman <laughs> so, 
All right. Well, enough with the small talk. Let's get into this thing here. All right. Uh, We're here to talk, as I said at the top, about A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. Um, Faulkner, for many people, is challenging. Mm-hmm. So um, when when I was thinking about all of the different short stories that we could possibly do, I had oh, three or four Faulkner stories as possible the stories to discuss. And one of the reasons that I chose A Rose for Emily um, is something that the two of you were chatting about off the air while I was filling my mug up with my green tea. And you were talking about just how good Faulkner is at what I think you might have used or said, um, Jonathan, at, he, you said that something to the effect of he's just very good even when he's trying to just tell a straightforward story. Faulkner is often sort of known for, you know, the sentences such as the one at the beginning of um, Absalom, Absalom, I think it is, where it goes for like two pages. Um, he's known for being um, loquacious, shall we say, <laughs> um, of having very dense uh narrative structures uh and thus of being quite difficult to read sometimes when you read him and you're unfamiliar or even when you are familiar it feels like you are wandering about in a dark cloud um when you're reading faulkner but in this story as you pointed out he it is much more straightforward um Mm -hmm. and you can see um faulkner's um skill at sort of creating um narrative stories and characters um in a really rich sort of way without having all the other stuff getting in the way. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to, to discuss this story. So before we kind of dive into some examples of that, I would like to hear from each of you about your, you know, it's the age old question that I ask um, about some of your experiences with Faulkner and how you feel about him. I feel like he is one of those people who gets some very, the responses of various extremes. You've got the people who are just desperately in love with him and the people who are just desperately in hate with him. (laughs) Um, Do either of you, I'll start with you, Heidi, first. Um, Do either of you fall into one of those, or do you fall into one of those extremes, one of either of those extremes? Uh, That's a good question. No, I don't fall into an extreme, although I am a Faulkner fan. I do like Faulkner a lot. I like the challenge of deciphering the sentences. In general, I, I don't tend to be a fan of stream of consciousness writing like he does, but he does it so beautifully that I appreciate him uh, in many ways as like an artist. I kind of look at his work and I think, how did you do that? It's just so brilliantly constructed. So I appreciate it. I like it. Um, And one of the reasons I know I like Faulkner is because in general, his writing style and his genre are not my favorites. I'm not a huge fan of Southern Gothic. Uh, especially modern, although the older stuff I really like. So the fact that I like him testifies, I think, to his brilliance as a writer. Hmm. Jonathan, what about you? Yeah. Do you fall into one of the extremes or is my thesis there? Are you going to just blow that up completely? <laughs> well, I'm afraid I'm not going <laughs> to prove your thesis. Um, I, um, Heidi, you said that you don't like the kind of thing he does, but you love him. That's kind of the way yeah. I feel too. And, and um, everything I say, everything I value about writing in principle, he's sort of violates all that um, and not not he doesn't violate every principle but certainly the idea of that a writer needs to love his reader and and reach out to the reader and connect to the reader yeah, that sort of high modern impulse to uh to not do that and sort of push the reader away and make the reader you know mm. yeah keep him at a distance yeah so uh yeah. i in principle i really can't stand that but 
Faulkner, I just can't help it. I just, I, I do like him a lot. And he, um, he just sort of makes a believer of me. Some of my, my favorite writers are the ones who do things I, I normally can't stand, but the fact that they win me over makes, makes them one of my hmm. favorites. So, so what is it then that he does that wins you over? I mean, so it's, it's probably not the things that you hate that are winning you over. So it's yeah. despite that he's doing something despite that, that I wins think for you Faulkner, it, it usually feels like, and, and not always the first time through, but when I have to, when I read him a second time, I feel like, you know what, that was worth the trouble. That was worth the work it took me to get there. Mm. And so often with you know, modernist authors, I never get to the point where I say, that was really worth the work. I'm really glad I, I did that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I do think, especially the second time through, now Rose Friendly doesn't count. It's, it's straightforward and it's very approachable. But something like, um, as I lay dying, first time I read it, I just didn't have any use for it. And, um, and now... I love as I lay dying. Hmm. Heidi, um, do you feel the same way about that? And I need you to talk for a solid 20 seconds because I just realized I forgot something that I need. And so I need you to fill in some gaps here <laughs> and not make me ask a follow-up question while I run to my office and get the thing Go that for I it. need. So, I can do that. Okay. Challenge accepted. I All right. Even, so we'll, when I get back, you could have said anything in the world about Falcon or about me. <laughs> so but, you. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I'm going to allow you. So 25 seconds to just talk about whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Go. Okay. So I do agree with what you just said, Jonathan, the, I think the sense of dawning comprehension that I get when I read Faulkner is yeah. just delightful to me. Uh, for example, in the anthology that I have where I read A Rose for Emily, it's all marked up and underlined and everything. It also has the story Barn Burning, uh-huh. which is an example of that labyrinthine writing that you referred to. But the sentence is very circular and repetitive, and he uses the same word several times in the same sentence, and it's almost stream of conjure, you're not exactly sure what's going on. Yeah. So I, I read Rose for Emily uh, to review it for the podcast. And then I read Barn Burning and I had to read it three times before yeah. I really knew what was going on in the story. But, then, but were you glad you read it three times? Yes. Three oh, times? it was so just the, the depth that, that he, I love Barn Burning and the depth in which he, uh, Hey David, welcome back. Thank you. Um, <laughs> gets into the mind of this child and the um, how it reflects the society. It's really just remarkable writing and it unfolds so beautifully. So it's worth it. Reading yeah. Faulkner is worth it. Whereas some other writers who write in stream of consciousness that are just so, you know, self-indulgent and, and I think it's not worth it. Yeah. So Ezra that, Pound. I've, I've never yeah. read Ezra Pound enough times to say, I really, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. <laughs> What about I, him, never, um, I never get the Joyce. sense that if I read it one more time, it, I'm going to get it next time. It's like, yeah. I just don't care about this. Yeah, right. What, what about James it. Joyce? Does, would he, where does he fall into this? This is an aside, obviously. It's not. Mm-hmm. I've never read James Joyce. Have you, Heidi? Yeah, I have. I I do think James Joyce is worth it. Although, I I mean, every everybody every scholar in the whole world says it's, you know, Ulysses is the greatest novel of the 20th century. And I, I, I'm sure I agree with that, but I do think that it's hard. It's very hard to read Joyce. It's harder than it is to read Faulkner. You have to have specialized knowledge and that I think sometimes That's why scholars is, like it. Yeah. It's so unapproachable yeah. that it is worth it, but not for that same sense in your soul of, wow, I really, 
like there's something worth imitating here. It's more like, oh, thank goodness I finally got this. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll probably bother yeah. some people when I say this, but I, mm-hmm. when you have to have specialized knowledge, you have to have a guide to study literature. Uh, I mean, I, or t- you're both creating and studying it wrong. Like right. there, I, that, I'm not saying that there's not the place for a guide. But mm-hmm. I, but if you ha- if the only way you can truly experience a work of literature to its fullest is with a guide, then I think you're probably have some problems. right for the author to write that intentionally. Like that's what Joyce did. I'm going to make this book very very hard for something like Homer. Uh, you we need the specialized knowledge not because it's obscure, but because we don't live in that culture anymore. So we need some you know, some information in order to access the ideas, which were not necessarily intended to be hard. Whereas Joyce just wrote it to be hard. Right. So what about Dante? Where, where does Dante fall on this, on this schema that you've laid out, David? Oh, good question. Um, so I think that we do our students a fairly significant disservice when we tell them that the only way to enjoy Dante is to know everything that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same thing with Homer. Like, I just, if someone, I don't know, th- we could do a whole show on this. Um, we should. <laughs> and we could argue about it, I'm sure. Because if you're like, I'm a literature teacher too. So like, there's, I'm basically trying to put myself out of business by saying this, I suppose. So anybody who's a literature teacher is going to be a little bit like, what's he talking about? But I don't think that the job of a literature teacher is to, um, man, this is an entirely, this is, we are going far afield here. Um, I think that very rarely should the job of the literature teacher be to, um, unpack specialized knowledge. Um, because unless it's asked for. Um, whereas I think that the job of the literature teacher should be to cultivate an environment where conversations can be happening. Hmm. Um, now I'm splitting hairs there. Go yeah. on, go ahead. Well, I'm just, you, you, like you said, you're, that you're splitting hairs a little bit and, and I do get this. I, I agree with you in spirit. It's just, that how do you know what's, what specialized knowledge and what is, you know, no, what is, and that was the next point I was going to make. And so is, the environment for yeah. really enjoying this sometimes requires, you know, if, if you are familiar, for instance, with the carpe diem trope, it's really fun to say, oh, look, here it is again. And here's how this author did it differently from this other author. And that really yep. increases one's enjoyment. But there's also, you know, like Flannery O'Connor said, you know, when she said, every time a literature teacher asked her a question about her stories. Every time she pictured her stories being discussed in a literature class, she said, I could just picture it like a little frog under a glass with its organs out for yeah. them to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's such and a so, hard balance. And I know that's what you're getting at there. Yeah, it is. I, and what I'm not, so again, I'm not trying to put any of us out of business, <laughs> um, but, or the show out of business. But, you know, one of the things that's important to me about the show is that we're cultivating an environment where these discussions can be happening. And I think one of the things that teachers do is too often is they view their classrooms as the place where they are going to preside. Um, and that they're yeah. going to present their knowledge. It, right. David Hicks talks in Norms of Nobility a lot about the idea of like you, a, te- a teacher should not answer a question until it's been asked. And so the, what the good teacher does is he guides students towards the right sort of questions. Yeah. So, you know, if I go into the classroom and say I'm teaching Ulysses or, you know, Faulkner or whatever, 
I think one of the things you have to choose when you're deciding the books that you're going to read is, am I choosing books that are going to create an environment where I'm becoming the presider of, of these students, as opposed to, am I choosing the books that are going to open the environment of our classroom up to them uh, having the right kind of conversations and um, learning to ask the right sorts of questions. And that is going to, you're going to get a lot of different mileage on different books based on the students, based on, you know, the school you're in, based on the age of the students and the things they've read before and all that. And that's why, you know, that's why the teacher, like a good author, has to know and love their students, you know, rightly to be able to sort of, that's part of creating that environment, right? Knowing the students and knowing what they already know. Um, and the kind of, yeah. and then guiding them towards the right kind of questions. Um, it's not manipulative. I, I so, I so agree with that approach to teaching and I'm so not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, who is right? Yeah. Not a lot of people are. And I mean, even the greatest teachers, I mean, that's why teaching is hard. Right. And that's, but that's also why we tend to rely on just special, giving out the specialized knowledge that we have. <laughs> And also, sometimes I think I didn't go get a PhD in 17th century literature to listen to what 19-year-olds think about Paradise Lost, you know? <laughs> I mean, we just probably not a very appropriate attitude, but never like. And I, I you know, um, I'm, this, I'm kind of getting on a soapbox here and just shouting. Um, but, well. I don't, I don't think shouting. you are, David. No, I, I think that, like Jonathan said, it is... Teaching is hard. Teaching is a, I mean, it's, it's a harmony. It's, I mean, Jonathan, you're exactly right. What, uh, if, if the goal of our class is to find out what 19 year olds think about paradise lost, we're not teaching properly. Our job is to open up paradise lost to these students. And so, uh, harmonizing, what do they need to know in order to do that? And how do I get them to, to, to love it and get there on their own? That's the challenge of teaching. And that's some of why we do the podcast too. Yeah. So, and, and let me clarify. I don't think that we should just let 19 year olds or 13 no. year olds or whatever, just go in there and say whatever they want. My job is not to cultivate an environment where a kid can say whatever they want. And it's just all about what they feel about a book. My mm-hmm. job, you know, you, but you, my job is to create an environment where the right kind of conversations can happen, not exactly. just an environment where I can preside over the, and over yeah, the I totally agree. And, and so for me, it's, you know, I, I swing between the two extremes, you know, it's, yeah. it's I don't know how to do that thing. I think you have to though, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What'd you say? But I think I think probably we have to swing between oh, yeah. the two extremes. Like I'm not uh-huh. saying that there's not a place for special, the specialized knowledge of the teacher. Yeah. Um, yeah. But figuring, but the job of the teacher is to figure out what is the place. I'm just saying that it, the classroom, a properly ordered and harmonized classroom, is not a classroom that is built around the specialized knowledge of the teacher. It's a place where the environment is such that the specialized knowledge of the teacher is asking the right kind, answering the right kind of questions at the right time. Um, it's about the teacher has to be humble enough, I guess, if you will, to know what the place for their specialized knowledge is. And that's right. really hard. Right. Yes. Right. Humility. That's you're, you were right on. That's so that's in such short supply, right? Hmm. Anyway, I probably just offended people. Nope. I think, well, sometimes truth is offensive, <laughs> but a rose for Emily is a great story. <laughs> Well, no, so, so wow, what a good segue. Well, <laughs> your, I think do. I nailed that. That was subtle. <laughs> I think well, did. I do. So <laughs> one of the reasons that I kind of went off on this is because you guys were talking about having to know specialized knowledge to know Faulkner. Right. And one of the reasons. It's our fault. 
No, 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 no. But one of the reasons why I like this story, I was talking about why I chose this one and barn burning was one of the ones I was considering. But one of the reasons why I love this story is because I think it is, it is an ideal story to teach with high schoolers because yes. it, you can discuss all of the things that make for great fiction characters and you know, conflicts and the, you know, the inner life of a place and of people and, and all those great things without having to unpack it with too much specialized knowledge. Um, well, you can teach a lot of his other things in college, for example, once they have, once the students have a certain sort of foundation that this, that makes the specialized knowledge that, that it takes to read Faulkner sort of necessary or make, mm-hmm. they start asking for it. This is a story you can teach with a 16 year old or 15 year old without them needing all that other stuff. And so mm-hmm. that, and thus it is an ideal for almost any, an ideal story for almost any teacher to teach. Yep. But okay, so let's dive into that. Um, you were talking about, there's like a, I don't know if you use this word, but there's like a purity of narrative. There's like a, it's a very pure narrative going on here. Um, and I mean that like, it doesn't have a lot of superfluous fluff. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? And those weren't the words you used, but that's what you were saying off the air. Mm-hmm. Jonathan. Me? Okay, sorry. Um, one thing I was saying to Heidi is um, reading this story reminds me of something that uh, I've heard about Picasso, and that is that he was really, really good at just straight-ahead representational drawing. And when he wanted to, you know, he could draw a zebra better than anybody or whatever, you know. You see, I saw a story about some zoo in Egypt was passing off. A, they painted a donkey like a zebra and were passing off a donkey as a zebra. But anyway, they needed Picasso, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, so Picasso, this guy that we associate with this cubism and all this, this really unapproachable, you know, non-representational art, or I guess I'd say semi, I'm not an artist. I don't know these words. But anyway, he was actually really good at just straight ahead art if that's what he wanted to do. And so... Um, Faulkner, motivated by some of the same you know, high modern impulses that p- motivated Picasso, turns out he was also really good at just a straight ahead story, which he did here. Um, I just, yeah, I love this story so much. When did you first read it? I was trying to remember. I, in, in my memory, I remember it as being junior high, but I also, what junior high teacher would teach this story to junior high people? I don't know. A good one. Um, (laughs) Heidi, when did you first read it? I read this in college in my American literature class. It was my first, I had read As I Lay Dying in high school and I didn't get it at all. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it was, I was way too early to read As I Lay Dying, which I've read since and love. But, um, so this was the, I guess the second Faulkner I read and this made me, I, I mean, even at the time when I was just learning to have eyes to see literary merit. <laughs> um, I, 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 a couple of years ago, my, my husband and I, we went to Greece and we saw the Parthenon <clears throat> and I have the same experience with the Rose for Emily that I did at the Parthenon when I just like bask in the perfection of the form. I just look at it and I'm like, it's like nourishing to my soul. This story is so beautifully constructed. The unfolding narrative of it is so lovely that even though it's a weird you know, Southern Gothic story with necrophilia at the end, but this, the way that it is unfolds is so beautiful and so masterful that I, I, I just love it. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the structure then you both kind of talked about how 
unlike his other work, it does, it's much more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, does that, do you want to look at specific structural choices that he's making or would you rather, would you guys rather talk about um, characters and some of the mysteries and things and, you know, where, what, 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 what about this story? Like just, so as a writer, sure. Jonathan, what about this story just makes you like, excited like what do you what when you have the story in front and you're like you're looking at your you're looking at your students and you're dick something just flows out of you about this story and particularly from the perspective of someone who does create narratives yeah. as well and tell stories what is it about the story that just flows from you and with excitement well since i spent too much time the last two podcasts i was on talking about point of view i'm going to skip point of view although point of view is pretty exciting. Oh, we are not skipping that i will come back <laughs> later. well let's just say i'm, I'm not going to bring it up let's say that Okay, I'll bring it up later. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, because I love point of view in this story. Uh, the other thing that excites me about this story is just the, the organic nature with which the symbols uh, play themselves out, right? Um, the, that sentence in the first paragraph or two where the, the house is this old Victorian house that has gone to rack and ruin is, is uh, lifting. What does it say? I just want to read it because it's so awesome. Uh, only yep, Ms. Emily's correct. house was left lifting its stubborn and coquettish decay above the cotton wagons and the gasoline pumps and eyesore among eyesores. That is such a perfect symbol of, of Emily's life. And yet it doesn't feel forced in the least. If you've ever been to, if you've ever driven through one of these towns and seen a decaying old Victorian mansion, this is what life looks like in many of these towns. And yet it's such a perfect symbol. And it, it, it's a reminder to me that, the, that we, that we understand symbol because things actually represent ideas in the real world. Right. I mean, unlike something like a, a wedding ring, we all agreed this wedding ring is going to represent marriage. And if you showed it to a alien from Mars, he could guess for a hundred years and never guess that it represented marriage. It's just, we all agreed. That's what it represents. But then there are other symbols that that grow up out of the world, mm-hmm. and and that's one of them. And um, and the story is full of them, right down to the to the the iron gray hair at the end. Well, and even the way in the first uh, what is it, the first sentence after the colon, the men through well when Miss Emily Grierson died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men through a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument, the women mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house. And even the way he just layers in that affection for a fallen monument thing, it it from the beginning, you're he's laying out the themes, right? Um yeah. he he doesn't waste any time telling us what the story is about. It's in the yeah. first sentence, but it doesn't feel forced. It, it no. feels organic. It feels like a living, it feels like a metaphor that is not sort of overstaying its welcome, right? It feels lived right. in, it feels and purposeful at the same time, you know, but it, but it feels natural. Yeah. And it just reminds us that the whole world is shot through with meaning, you know, mm-hmm. that you don't have to uh, insert meaning or add meaning. If, if you just pay attention to what's right in front of you, the meaning kind of makes its way out. Mm. Mm. What do you guys make of that choice in the little passage that you read there of the, his uh, choice of the word coquettish, stubborn and coquettish <laughs> decay, because it's, there is a, let um, me might call that some irony. <laughs> oh, it's just so perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved that word. That's the word that stood out to me. I haven't underlined a bunch of times. Uh, 
that idea of the stubborn and coquettish decay, which to your point you made earlier, Jonathan, is exactly a description of Miss Emily herself Mm -hmm. living in this home. So there's this world of Miss Emily, then there's the world of her uh, decaying home, which is again encircled by the world of Southern uh, decaying aristocracy, uh, which, which again represents just the whole South. Right. So that's these worlds within worlds (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that word coquettish is perfect. It's the, an attempt to seduce or to draw in, but it's not working because it's decaying. Right. But it's stubborn. It won't let go. It's perfect. And the implication, there's the implication of romance there, right? Well, maybe like a, like a fallen sort of romance, but it's, you know, the, um, the whole, that's the kind of home that sort of, maybe fell out of fashion doing reconstruction, but then instead of being lived in, it in itself sort of became a symbol of, of like a romantic symbol of the plantation era's wealth, right? And privilege. Right. And so, you know, it, it's sort of a romance that li- that that fell into um, disarray, much like, you know, a romance based in coquettishness might. Um, and so again, that's like, and it's a symbol right. that... Or an, or an image to Jonathan's point, again, it feels natural, feels lived in, but it doesn't stray from his theme. He, so he can express the theme without having to express it directly. Yeah. Hmm. There is, I mean, there's so many of these throughout the whole story, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I have a question for you guys, going back to what the original conversation that we had at the beginning, and there's a reason why I kind of went on my soapbox there for with this particular story. It wasn't purely random this is a story that if you have a lot of specialized knowledge can be very helpful mm-hmm. so i'm curious about how you think that that should be dropped in mm-hmm. um because the name grierson for example if you have some specialized knowledge um it can be really really fun to know some of that so, like, for example, I don't. Do you, how much do you know about the name Grierson? By dating back to the Civil War, nothing. I know nothing. Please educate me. I want this specialized knowledge. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. I so, specialized knowledge too. If I was in a classroom, I would not be dropping it like this, right? And this is where I feel like this is a really this is worth discussing because I'd like I'd love to know your advice on when something like this should be brought into a piece of fiction. But Grierson, the name uh, that comes from a Union general named. Uh, Benjamin Grierson. He was a union colonel, actually. And he was the one that led the Vicksburg raid in 1863, the Tupelo raid in 1864, and the raid on Mobile in 1865. So before Sherman's march to the South, he basically laid all of the groundwork for the fall of the Deep South. Um, And that's where Faulkner got the name Emily Grierson. So, you know, you could drop that in there. You could look at um, his... Benjamin Grierson, he was the one who they freed slaves. They destroyed the Confederate strongholds and the storehouses. They destroyed all the railroads. Um, and it's now remembered, historians remember it as Grierson's raid. Um, and he's not maybe as widely remembered as other officers of the Civil War, but he was probably the most important key figure of the fall of the Deep South in the Civil War. So there's obviously a lot that you can think about with that. Um, some people are inclined, as I've experienced, to lecture on that from the get-go. 
Um, the first line being when Miss Emily Grierson died, you know, so mm-hmm. Grierson's right at the top. So then, and I've experienced this, they lecture about this right, right away. And they just set that out in front of you. Other people will, you know, try to layer it in somehow. So I'm curious where your instinct is to introduce something like that, if at all. And this is, we're getting into the pedagogy of teaching fiction here a little bit again, but it's right. an interesting fact, right? But is it more mm-hmm. than an interesting fact? Hmm. I, so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll feel that first, I guess I, um, I would give them that piece of knowledge because I, I am a believer that what, you know, opens up a story to you. Uh, However, I wouldn't draw the conclusion from it. I wouldn't say, therefore, this is why her name could represent the fall that, you know, turn it into a lecture about the meaning of the story. I might say, here's who Grierson was. Like, what do you make of that? How could that connect with her? Why would Faulkner have given her this name? Uh, what are, and, and, and Socratically add that to a conversation. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it into a lecture with my own thoughts and interpretations of this story. Do you, yeah. Jonathan? Would you feel the same way? Yeah, I would. I, I, you know, it also if if the story doesn't already, I mean, that's I would definitely approach it as a a little clue that might that might elucidate something that you already um, understand some other way. Right. Um, you mean like that you understand, like, but you can't ex- explain why, like something. No, I just mean, in other words, if I guess I would, I would communicate to students that if we didn't have other reasons to think that Emily Grierson represented the, the falling apart of the old order in the South, then the idea that she shares a name with a general who, who accelerated that process isn't especially interesting or, or helpful. So so okay. To cl- so you both. When would you? When would so, you- so Heidi. So Heidi put it in terms of you know what do you now that we've discussed this story. What do you make of the fact that this is the same? The general has the same. I, I would definitely backload that little bit of information. So not so maybe don't like set the story down in front of your students and say this is a story we're going to read and before they've read it here's a piece of information. Here's something you should know. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. I mean, right. Okay. Otherwise, you're just doing something like um, you know Pilgrim's Progress or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right would you i mean would you say that that is something that if you so i know that piece of information right Mm -hmm. does it does it does do i am i required to share that no no certainly not i've been enjoying this story for something like 30 years without knowing that information Mm -hmm. right and And also your bit of information didn't it, it confirmed what I what I already know from the rest of the story, but it didn't shed any. I mean, it's, it it, def, I'm, it definitely is interesting. I'm not suggesting that it's not interesting by any stretch because I I just learned something I didn't know, so I, I love that. But it didn't do much to change the way I understand that story. Mm-hmm. You're getting at something that that's that I've been thinking about for a long time, basically since I was in college, and I had professors who were basically great professors, but then they were presenting so much of that sort of information at the top. Um, before I'd even read stuff. And you, it, it, when you are the teacher and you have this information, it feels so essential to you sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 
and you're like, everybody's going to love this. And if they don't know what I know, they're not going to be able to know everything about the story that they could possibly know. But you just, as you said, you've read this for 30 years and you've loved the story for 30 years. And what it did was it confirmed something you already felt and you already knew and you already understood about the story. And yeah. so there's a big difference in specialized knowledge. There's an instinct, I think, in, in a lot of people, a lot of teachers with specialized knowledge. And I'm not accusing someone specific, of, or like anybody specific of this. I'm just saying that there yeah. is an instinct to feel that the knowledge that we have is more important than it actually is. Yeah. Um, and that's where it's tough to know, to be able to identify when, when and whether you should present this piece of information that you love knowing. David, I've got a great illustration of that, about this story. So when I was reading back through this uh, earlier this week, um, I got to Emily Grierson and I thought, huh, it had never occurred to me that Emily Grierson has the same last name as the one of the uh, feuding families in Huckleberry Finn, the the, the Griersons and the and the Shepherdsons. And huh. I'd, I'd worked at this whole I'd worked at this whole thing in my mind about how these you know oh obviously represents the same thing. And then I realized the people in Huck Finn aren't named Grierson; they're named Grangerford. <laughs> and so I worked out this whole thing that if they huh. were true, it would make sense. You know, it would be make sense. It's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> and so your fact about like if you were to come back and say you know what I just lied there was no Colonel Grierson that would have you know it would be sort of the same thing that I had hoped, that I I was I was ready to huh. talk about the the Griersons and the Shepherdsons thank goodness I looked it up before I <laughs> well it's funny because like in college I wrote a lengthy essay on this story that that used the Grierson thing as sort of a way into my thesis. It wasn't, uh, it was essentially introductory material that then I was able to, to unpack and, you know, take it, take in different ways. And so for me, you know, it feels like sort of essential, but really all it is is sort of essential to the way I studied the story. Yeah. It's not essential to understanding the story, like inherent, like to it, to, to end to everybody's a way of understanding and experiencing the story. It helped me, but that doesn't mean it's going to help every one of my students. Right. Or make it well, essential think, anyway. It might be helpful. Right. right. Well, and I think teachers are so often tempted to give specialized knowledge so that they can talk about it to their students or at their students. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it makes, so, you, it makes you essential. <laughs> right. Exactly. And the goal of specialized knowledge is always to open up the story to your students. That's it. They need there's So the Greer something that opened it up a little more to me, right? That's really interesting. So now I'm thinking about like the, like you said, the irony of that. Um, so, but so often I think teachers are a bit self-indulgent sometimes with that specialized knowledge and it can be overwhelming to the students and make them feel like they have to have it. Like I can't just read a story on my own without a teacher. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is frightening to a student. All I think the, that's the, what I'm getting at. I think yes. that's, that's behind what I'm trying to badly our say. Knowledge should not, our knowledge and our communication to our students should not make them anxious and dependent. Hmm. It needs yeah, to open great. up the work to the student. And that's the teacher's responsibility. And sometimes we need to look at our classes and say, I just need to stop talking because I can tell hmm. they're getting overwhelmed. And all I'm doing is defending my own theory about this story, which that's not why I'm teaching. So I think that that motivate going to that motive is helpful for, for teachers in understanding what should I say and what should I keep silent about? Yeah. But David, I mean, I feel like you, you offered up that information about the, was it general Grierson or Colonel, any the, the, the military yeah. figure Grierson, yeah. you offered that up as bonus, not as 
key right. information. Well, yes. and I also, part of what I'm trying to do is say, here's this information that I have that I find sort of interesting and that I, mm-hmm. that meant something to me when I was in college and it helped me unpack some things as I was thinking through it. So when I'm teaching this story to my students, help me figure out where that should, when it, how that should come up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, cause I think a lot of us who love literature have books or stories that we love. And somewhere along the way, somebody gave us this really interesting factoid that we ran away, ran with. Right. And mm-hmm. our instinct is that everybody's going to love it. Um, and so, you know, uh, when right. do we, or we have things that we kind of become our personal mission to share all the time, right. To tie in mm-hmm. to every story or whatever. And like, there are certain principles of storytelling that everyone should know, but how much of it should be the things that we care about and how much of it should we be letting our students identify? And I think right. that that's, there's like a, I don't know, that's a, that's a learned skill. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know. That, the, it, I've been thinking a lot about environment in our teaching, the kind of environments that we're creating mm-hmm. and the way we present our own knowledge um, determines or has a lot plays a role in in the kind of environment that we're creating. Um, does that make, does that make sense? Did I say that in a way that was in any way did any way was made sense? Yes, that absolutely makes sense. And I do think that in order to really love this story, there are some things that you need to know for a Rose friendly. I think you really have to know about the, the, the downward trajectory of Southern culture after the civil war and the psychology of that, the impact of that, which this story speaks to, but it's helpful as you go into it to, to, to have some knowledge about that. So there Wait, are what, some things that you think, what, what, what would open up this story? Go what ahead. What do you mean by downward trajectory of Southern culture though? I think I mean the decay of the aristocracy that, uh, uh I don't mean that that didn't have that wasn't necessary or positive anyway. But what I mean is exactly what we said. In order for you to see that line, the stubborn and coquettish decay of this home, you need to know that that was happening all over the South. That this story is representing how that antebellum culture was kind of crumbling around them, and then how that impacted the psychology of the average Southerner as well as the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. So you think that you need to. Uh, um just clarifying here, you would say that you need to know the sort of universal or not universal, but the common, the commonality of the experiences that are presented in the story, like how common they were for it to unpack this story. That didn't make any sense. What I just said. No, I, that's a good question. And I, I think I understood that. <laughs> um, I, not, I didn't understand. It. <laughs> I don't think it needs a whole lecture. Certainly. I think you can do this. You could kind of sketch a few sentences either before or after doing a, you could either do a read through of this story and then present that, or you can do a Socratic discussion to get there. I think there's lots of different pedagogical tools that you can use to get to that, but that is part of the heart of the story. Do you think you can teach a story without getting to the like essential idea of the story? Like can students experience a story in a positive and meaningful way without maybe talking the entire time or not the entire time, but talking, uh, significantly about what sort of the thesis or the, the primary theme of the story is? I'm going to oh, think about so that, Jonathan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think so because I feel like I've had meaningful conversations about literature and then later decided, Oh, you know what? Maybe the more important 
ideas in the story are these, and then we can have another conversation about those. Do you think then that that we spend as literature teachers too much time trying to focus on the theme of a story? Yes. Absolutely. What do you think, Jonathan? Like, is that instinct to focus on a specific theme that it, that common instinct is, is that? Yes. I, I, I think, I think there's a tendency among teachers to focus too much on theme. I don't know that that's my particular problem as a teacher. I think my teacher, I, I may err on the side of not focusing enough on theme. I'm always wanting, mm-hmm. wanting to talk about how symbols work and stuff like that, which yeah, yeah. poor students, you know, I mean, I, I'm always approaching, <laughs> I tend to approach literature as, you know, what does this teach us about writing and how stories are put together? And I don't know that that's even fair to my students, you know, not always. I mean, talk about being self-indulgent, right? right. There, are there are different ways to be self-indulgent. And I tend to, to head off in that direction too often. Right. But don't, don't you guys think that, I mean, I'm just going to say a common assumption I have, feel free to challenge it, that structure and meaning are so integrally tied together in creating the world of the story that there's no way to not get to theme if you talk long enough and accurately enough about a story. Uh, that's, like that, that's fair. So I then I think you can start with anything. Like we, you can start with structure. You can start with symbols. You can... I, so when I answered yes to David, I was assuming like the reason that that fails as a teaching method is because it gets there too fast. Mm-hmm. Can I, can, can I adjust my question then? Yeah. Can you properly teach a story without naming the core theme? Yeah. Yes. Because I think, you know, for example, we could talk about the story, we could talk about point of view, or we could talk about the symbols or the specific characters or even just plot, and we could never name a specific theme. Right. Yeah. But we could, we could still get to the core of it. Well, we'd be talking about it because that's good writers. The theme is everywhere. And what the, the mistake I think a lot of people make, uh, and, and I'll be careful here, but I think this is particularly too, true of Christians, is to confuse theme with moral. Right. So if I'm teaching, I'm trying to get to the moral of the story. What, you know, what, if, what, what do you need to learn? Lo- what are you supposed to learn from this story? And theme and moral are two very different things. So that is, so I'm not sure you can talk about a great story without talking about the theme, even if you are kind of in what you're pointing out, maybe what you'd think of as the weeds that, you know, the symbol or this or that. I mean, we just talked about the theme, talking about two adjectives and a noun, right? The stubborn and coquettish decay. Although I think one thing that's happening here is, is we are using, we are working from the assumption that, that theme is somehow the most important. So whatever turns out to be most important about a story that turns out to be the theme. And so, you know, and, and so, I mean, I don't quite know what I'm getting at here, except that we can certainly, I guess, one, one way to ask the question is, can you talk about a story without talking about what's most important about the story? Huh. It's, that's not very precise language, but right. in some ways I feel better about it than, than saying theme, than, than using theme as a shorthand for the most important thing about the story. I mean, I think that's what probably 
uh, Heidi, what you are talking about when you say yes, arriving at the theme. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just that that is too easily equated with something simple and something, you know, immoral, as you said, or, or, a, you know, some idea when the truth is a story is an experience and you don't, you know, you don't, the point isn't I've experienced this story and now I can abstract it into a theme. Right. Yeah. One of the, it gets back to this idea. I would just ask the question about naming. And I think we have an instinct, perhaps it's a, due to us living post enlightenment. We have an instinct to sort of categorize and catalog and name our knowledge. Right. And mm-hmm. sometimes what, when we, when we read a story, when we don't, we feel this need to name what it is that we're experiencing and the knowledge that we're gaining from it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I'm wondering to what extent you guys think that is um, of value to students. Um, and perhaps when we should be like, when should we make a, make our priority helping students name what they're seeing and when we should um, perhaps not necessarily prioritize the sort of cataloging of the information and the experience that they're, that they're going through when they read something. Um, because a story is, on the one hand, certainly there's, there's this subjective experience of the reader, but there's also very specific things authors are trying to do, right? And we don't want to ignore the sort of uh, objective truths and objective um, elements that we're, we're running into as well. Sure, but it is worth asking, does the subjective experience lead you to, what does the subjective experience lead you to? Right. Does it lead you to the, you know, the, some sort of objective? of truth or, or whatever is it is it you know um yeah in yeah. teaching Flannery O'Connor for instance I'm always having to deal with Flannery O'Connor saying here's what I meant I mean in, in her letters and her essays you know she would say hey I'm a Christian I'm trying to communicate these ideas about grace and then and then when you read her stories does that experience of her stories uh you know she, she was she was very confident that just by experiencing those stories they would somehow do their work on you and, and give you an understanding or give you an experience of, of grace, a really hard grace. And, uh, and I'm always having to have the conversation with people. Did it work or did it not? She said she was trying to do this. Um, a, should you, you know, reevaluate your experience in light of what she said she was trying to do? Huh. Or do you just say, yeah, maybe she was trying to do that. It didn't work. And is that, is that an okay way to read a story? I feel like I'm always walking a tightrope between the subjective. Um, and, and by the way, when I teach writing also, it's, Hey, I know, I know you, this is what you think you're saying, but if your reader isn't, if you aren't creating the conditions in which yeah. your reader experiences that you didn't, do what you thought you were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and you can't say to the reader, no, but but here's what but no, here's what I was really saying. If if you if your reader didn't get that, you didn't really say it. So what you're getting at though is that that an a piece, an an artifact, a thing that has been created is inherently a thing of its of its own. It has right. and so I mean, we're getting a little bit into the idea of authorial in, in, intention, I guess, a little bit. So if the author intends something, he still has to have created um a work that um that is harmonious, right? Yes. yes. And yeah. so because the subjective experience and one of, and, and I'll put it this way, it seems like one of the things that can help determine 
these, whether a work of art is harmonious within itself is the kind of experiences that are most commonly um, had with the work of art. Is that fair to say? Yes. By people who are reading honestly, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Right. Right. I'm not saying that's oh, the yeah, mindset most right. commonly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that- I agree with that. And I, I mean, that's why I always say, and I've had many conversations even in the last week at the Cersei National Conference about this. <laughs> I, I believe that the work, the artifact transcends the authorial intent. But lots of people disagree with that. So, and that's a literary discussion. That's, yeah. I mean, this, this is the scholarship of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not picking fights just to be I clear. know. Just to be know. anybody but, out there who, mm-hmm. what, you might be picking fights. <laughs> does, I, I, I'll just say that it sounds like you're picking fights. It sounds like we're having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Does Faulkner say, I don't actually know this. This is, this is a real question. Does Faulkner say what he's trying to do in this story or in his work? Well, Faulkner is, he, I mean, Faulkner is about um, cultivating and preserving certain cultural, you know, elements. Um, but, I, but he also like was pretty into subtlety. <laughs> so, I mean, the other question is, would you believe him if he did say what he was trying to yeah, I mean that's 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 a good, that's a great point. Um, and people change their minds on stuff. That's right. <laughs> and they that's also exactly. discover that they said something that they didn't mean to say, and they actually prefer what they did say. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, let's talk about point of view in this story. Even yes. I think that's an interesting segue because I have this. Well, Jonathan. Talk about point of view. You have, you have, <laughs> oh, I've well, got, thanks for I've got theories on this, but you loved that yeah. idea concept. So, talk just. To, I'm just going to open the floor up to you. Could you give us a lecture on point of view? Uh, well, I, I'll I will uh, resist the temptation for a lecture, but I love the way um, the narrator offers us concrete facts um, that he's totally mixed up, or, or not that he, not that the narrator is mixed up about but that the people at the time are mixed up about, you know, the, why, why we had this smell. Um, you know, I love that the, that the uh, ladies of the town said, well, how can you expect a, a place to stay, clean, to stay clean when you've got a man running the kitchen? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, a man running the kitchen is not going to cause the odor of a, of a rotting human body. <laughs> right. Right. But I, I love the way the, the everybody in the town that's, that's just that was just racism though yeah <laughs> yeah well, okay um but uh i love the way that everybody in the town is a storyteller yep. yep um and they're all telling stories that fold around miss emily the way a river folds around an immovable boulder that's right there in the middle of the stream you know um, and we're going to make up whatever stories we have to make up to let miss emily be miss emily right mm-hmm. um uh, you know, she's like, um, uh, Heidi, we were talking about, uh, Rip Van Winkle. You know, we, we talked about the, the idea of a stasis that is its own kind of force. Right. And she's, she's that, you know, she's this immovable force and, um, and people who think that they're in, or she's, I'm sorry, she's an immovable object. And people who think that they're an irresistible force find that they end up, they're the one who's ones who blink, you know, one of the things, I'm sorry. No, yeah. go, go, go. I, I, was, I, I got off the topic of, I did get off the topic of point of view. My point was 
we we keep hearing everybody's story, um, which is kind of a point of view issue. Mm. And then at the end, we have this surprising but believable end where where the truth is revealed and then we can go back and see all these other stories that we heard and and now everything makes sense i just love the the structure of the way that point of view and and that revelation happens Mm -hmm. you were talking about how well what i think you were talking about how she kind of looms large essentially emily does and in part of the way that's revealed is as you said through the point of view like it's it the way he uses point of view accentuates the weight that she has in the mythology of the town. Yes. And he tells the story through kind of a third person plural narrator, which, you know, so the first line when Emily Grierson Grierson died, our whole town, you know, it's, which kind of that, that third person plural narrator sort of rep, it, it feels representative of the town as a whole. Absolutely. Rather than, rather than the single perspective. So yes. things are seen and done and heard and all that by the collective town and like by collective mm-hmm. consciousness. So it's our town. It's um, they prepare to call it the house as is our custom. Um, mm-hmm. The narrator says, when we saw her again, her hair was cut short. Um, and then later says, we were surprised when Homer Barron was gone. Um, then there's, then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. And one of us lifted something from it. Yeah. So and, technically um, this is first person narration. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's the it's like it's basically the perspective of y'all. Yeah. Yeah. It's first person plural narration. It is. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's rare in stories and intentional. So it's it's as if the narrator, as David pointed out, is a, a conglomerate representation of the town itself which again is representative of Southern culture. (laughs) So it's as if it's casting judgment upon itself and its Mm. own decay. Right. With, but like you said, I love what you said, Jonathan, about the storytelling that they, like they, it's once you get to the end, it's a little obvious, right? You go back and read it again and you're like, yeah, "Yeah," right. So they, did the t- did they know? Did the royal we that's being used? Did did we know? Did we participate? Are we complicit? That's mm-hmm. a lot of the question of this story. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it's both. So this this point of view is both sort of representative of the obsession of the town in Miss Emily, mm-hmm. but it also allows the key points to to your point. It allows the key points of the story the story's narrative to be called into question. Yes. Um, and I think it thus, and, and therefore in our, on a reread offers a lot more sympathy to Emily Grierson herself. Yes. Because maybe at the, as you're reading it the first time you think, Oh, this is a crazy woman. And then as you go and you, you read it a second time, you start calling into question everything they're saying, because it's all these different perspectives and you don't actually know who to trust. So just mm-hmm. how crazy was she, you know, right. It, I think that that sort of creates empathy. Wait a minute. It's pretty crazy. I mean, can't we agree yeah. she's crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... You what passes for crazy in your town? <laughs> hey, I live in Concord, North Carolina, man. There's a lot of crazy here. I can tell some stories about that. Well, I, I, tell me some. If, if, if her behavior seems not crazy to you, then I want to hear about your environment. Well, but I, I do think I'm writing that a screenplay about it. Oh, good. <laughs> Well, I do think that that Faulkner, whereas not defending her per se, but I do think that Faulkner makes a case 
of what choice does she have, right? Like this, which obviously you could choose to not be a crazy person and murder people in your house. Like that's, that's always an option. That's one but, <laughs> right? I'm but not denying the, that she's crazy. Just <laughs> no, okay. I know you're not, but the, I, the patriarchal culture, like the, the family, the town pressure, this idea of her being an idol and, and, even just their sympathy, they call her fallen. The first time I read this story, I remember I thought she was pregnant mm-hmm. because they talk mm-hmm. about her mm-hmm. being fallen. Yeah, the, f- right? the fallen monument, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. which all that happened is basically she's dating a guy from out of town, right? So that the level who, of pressure upon her, work. right, yes, which I've read that interpret, And I've also read the interpretation that the, that the narrator is black, but I just don't think it works. I don't, that's a, that does not that's work. Weird. So that, so I, and I actually think both of them are, those are pretty, you can make pretty weak arguments for either one of those perspectives. But right. the point is, is that she is not a human in the story. She is an idol. She's a representation of the pressures ghost. of this culture. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's where you've got it's the the Southern Gothic. Fun, yes. The, yes. There's a grotesqueness about her. So what choice does she have then but to sleep with the dead, right? So which I, that's not to defend her. She's a crazy lady, but it is to say that there is this element woven in there of it costs something to be Southern aristocracy, especially when you die, when that yeah. falls away and you're the last remaining. I mean, so. Well, I wrote called the last Confederate. Um, yeah, and so that was the big idea: was that she was kind of like the last Confederate remaining in the town. She was the ghost of the of the old South that was that was remaining. And so, what does that mean? What? How do you think about the last Confederate in your place? I mean, we're dealing with this now in some ways, right? Culturally, how do you think about a heritage that is troubled? How do you think about the ghost that is haunting you? Um. Hmm. And I think that what those various perspectives do is not make her seem less crazy or less wrong, but what they do is possibly call into question who you should be empathizing with. Right. Well, they create a logic for it, right? Isn't it Chesterton that says the madman is actually the most logical man in the world because he's stuck in this circular system that he can't ever get out of. It's just small, right? So that is in some ways what Faulkner is telling us about in this story. That's a great insight to to help explain what's going on with Emily. There there is this very tight logic at work in her. And 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 nothing can break in on that logic. Yep, yeah. One of my favorite sentences. Yeah, that's right. And and I think my favorite utterance in the whole thing is, well, he may think he's the sheriff. (laughs) Yeah. Where where her her whole, she's so self-referential that nothing that no facts outside of her very tight little insane logic make make sense to her but you know right. what's tragic is that in some ways her own logic while absolutely crazy and out sort of overgrown like like a garden that's just completely overgrown it's in it begins at its core is something good not like the south not like the way right. not like slavery but she believes the way of life that she believes in in some ways it's a completely impure way of life but in some ways it is community centric right it's built upon good faith it's focused on local community as opposed to this newer sort of reconstruction way of life that is built on like the government driven community right it's built on um 
it's like they don't like the, she believes that they should be showing good faith to her family right but mm-hmm. they rely on the bureaucracy and don't don't um yeah into this concept of good faith so in some ways the tragedy is that that's a positive thing that has huh. completely been out overgrown and like she right. she that is in decay huh. is in decay and she allows that her her sort of persistence in living that way to drive her mad but let, let me ask let me ask this david i think it's i think it's worth pointing out and maybe i'm gonna ask maybe i'm just declaring here mm-hmm. um the so the community it seems very obvious that the community here is a the community kind of is the stories we tell each other um and yeah yeah, yeah. and then a, the new generation comes along and says um yeah, we don't tell those stories. We, we don't know those stories. Uh, you, you've got this story, which, by the way, was completely false, a made-up story, a fiction about um, the the city, the town of Jefferson owing money to the Greerson family who doesn't have to pay, pay taxes. That was a complete mm-hmm. fiction, a fiction that that the, that Emily got something out of that, the mayor did by not having to deal with her, you know, all this. Qu- Can I play devil's advocate on that one? Sure. I mean, it's false according to the people who were telling the story. Okay. That's the only thing I would say is like, that's where the perspectives come into question. Because if you're the, if this, if the town is telling the story and they think of Emily the way they do, then of course they're going to view their own perspective on that as the true one. Right. And so okay, we're maybe. using their perspective. I'm just throwing uh, that out there. Okay. I'm not even sure I believe that fully. Right. Just really noted. Yeah. Really noted. But, but these stories that the community tells benefit the community and the next generation says, it's not just, I don't get that story or I've never heard that story. Why would the, the the later generation buy into that story? They don't get anything out of that story. And so all these stories that the That's aristocracy yep. is telling and saying, you should believe this story, it does the Grierson's a lot of good for people to believe those stories, for them to believe that um, Mr. Grierson was a rich man when, in fact, he was broke and all he had was a house. I mean, that those were – it helps the aristocracy, uh, aristocracy for people to believe those stories. And then True. the next generation – why, why, I mean, it's a set of stories that benefit a certain group of people. And, and we're somehow disloyal for not believing the Grierson story anymore. But that was a story that benefited the Grierson's. You're, so you're getting it. This goes back to the authorial intent. And I love this because we could argue for days on end about is Faulkner um, arguing, is he sad that this other way of life has passed away? Mm-hmm. Like, or does he view it as a good thing? And we, I mean, and by the t- way, it, it could easily be both. Yeah, right? uh, well, and I, because you know, you, you feel certain what? Yeah, I feel certain ways about my crazy relatives. If if I had crazy relatives, I would feel certain ways about them. <laughs> but I wouldn't necessarily think they were right. And that's the way, I, as right. a senator, yeah. that's the way I feel about the South, right? I mean, I have certain, I have certain, um, uh, what's I don't know what the word is, but um, I might, uh, having grown up. In Georgia, I had certain feelings about Sherman, for instance. Huh. And now as a grown man, I think, well, I mean, Sherman did what Sherman needed to do. And I don't really, you know, well, Sherman's a bad example. Anyway, <laughs> my, my, let's just say my relationship, my relationship to white Southern history is, is complex. Yeah, I feel yeah. one way and I know something else. I know something yeah. else is true. And this is the nature of truth and feeling anyway, right? Mm. Right. And the power of stories that take us into these. So I, I'm from California. So I grew up on the West Coast. You're not even I, have, I know. I don't have 
I mean, literally my cultural psyche has no concept of Southern aristocracy, none. Mm-hmm. So I have no complex responses to Southern literature. I just read it and I can't enter into it emotionally the way other Americans can. I find that fascinating by the way. Um, but in reading this story, I, I, I think that your, your point about the, the stories benefiting the Grierson's, I, I think that you're right, but the responses of the townspeople are complicit in that story, right? So there has to be some benefit to the average townsperson. Now, as somebody who doesn't come from this culture, what is that? It's a real question. What is that benefit? Why are the townspeople participating in protecting the crazy lady who's a Grierson? That's a real question, you said? Yeah, real question. What does she represent? She's an idol. What is she an idol of? The lost cause, right? Okay. The Confederate cause? Something like that, yeah. Is it the culture? uh, Man. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) That's a complicated question. Right. I don't know. It's funny that you put it that way because how did so how did you say that question again? She's an remember. idol that they protect. Right. They're they I, are protecting her, right? They they don't make her pay taxes, even though the younger generation goes there. So I mean she the the the, work, the, the story Man. says she vanquished them. Yes. Horse and flesh. I love that. I love yeah, that. it's a warrior term. That's a combat yes. term. It's so so the trouble for me, and this is where you get the subjective part of it, is that I don't, I have never particularly read it as them protecting her as so much as they're just fed up with her and so they ignore her. Yeah, maybe so. Except that language of idol, right? I mean, I know, and the story and doesn't bear has, that out. They have the high the, ground. They have the legal high ground and they do not hold her accountable. The only explanation for that is that they're, participating in some way in protecting her. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, yes, that's that's true. Um, I guess one question is, are they vacuum. protecting her in a different way than Colonel Sartorus was protecting her? Huh. Is it the same is it the same thing or is it two different things? The fact that they don't that they don't um you know condemn her house or do whatever it is or whatever you do when people aren't paying their taxes, not condemn the house but but take it over, whatever. Right. Um, that's an interesting question. But but an idol has to represent some pantheon. So what pantheon yes. do you represent? Are you talking about the when you talk about idol, you're referring to the line about the monument? Well, Just no, they call her. Refer to two as an, that. As a, yes, two times idol. Two times exactly. I look in the window and she looks like an idol. Yeah. Plus the monument language separate. So is it just kind of the the issue of of holding on to the past? Um, is it an atta- some kind of deep psychical attachment to what she represents? I'm, I, I mean, that in some ways is, I think, and, a, and a possibly, big question of the story. Yeah. What is it when you when you associate with your uh, with your captor? Not not the the Stockholm syndrome. Yes, I was going to say yeah. the Helsinki, I was going to say the Helsinki syndrome. That would be especially rich. <laughs> well, right? it's a Scandinavian city. It's fine. Same kind of thing. <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's some version of the Stockholm syndrome that has them protecting her. 
this family that had a stranglehold on the, I mean, okay, but you know what? I'm overstating the case. We don't know if the Grierson's had a stranglehold on them. I don't, um, I'm going to have to think about this idea of them protecting her because I've never really read it that way. I've read it more like, um, they just, why not? They just want to ignore her. Um, I don't think ignoring her is, I don't don't think that's that's the right word. You, you might say they were just vanquished by it. They were just, you know, they couldn't handle her. So, so she represents a sort of, there is a strength of character there that puts the masses on the run. (laughs) Well, and I think, yeah, exactly. And I think that part of the point is that the, you know, sort of, post-reconstructionist legal system probably is not strong enough to withstand her sort of withstanding them. She just kind that's of, an way to, that's an interesting way to put that. In oh, terms I of, like you know, that. The failures of reconstruction against the, the, the mythology of the, of the old South and the lost cause. That's so, so all these young people are being sort of brought up in reconstruction, post-reconstruction era. Right? And they're being told these are the things that are going to move you forward and, give you a new life but ultimately it can't it can't even vanquish this one crazy old lady yeah so so they don't believe the old stories but they don't have any the mechanisms in place to to tell new ones oh that's good i like that i like that interpretation a lot i think that works in this story and so that you know one of the things is so she's tragic because of her inability to let go of her own history she's obsessed with the dead bodies of Yes. You know, that are in her home. Mm-hmm. The tragedies of her past, like those of the South, haunt her. And it's kind of overbearing to the to her end of the place. So then she just dies amongst the stench, right? Yeah. But the town kind of suffers suffers from what? The opposite malady, right? They're <laughs> perhaps being told to focus on the future, on progress, on all that kind of stuff. But is that at the cost of like sensing any meaningfulness to their heritage? Um, they view her as a hereditary obligation, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which that's kind of the story of reconstruction in some ways, people looking at the past as obligation. So when you just feel obligated to take care of something, how much can you actually care for it, right? So then right. that's why she's interesting to them as myth. They're not, she's not a person to them. She's a myth. And right. that's why I think that's where I think the idol comes in because it's not like they're worshiping her but she is representative, like it's, I don't know, effigy. Right. Yeah. Yes. Hey, along those lines, um, were y'all surprised when, uh, in my version, it's the second page, but we're relatively deep into the, you know, it's, it's the second page of a, of a less than eight page. So we're a quarter into the story when we first actually see her and she's a small, fat woman. Mm-hmm. Did that surprise yeah. y'all? For, yeah. some reason, for some reason, I've always imagined Miss Emily as being a, a little skinny lady, mm-hmm. and and that probably has nothing to do with the story itself. Just no, they you're you're right. I think it's because when she's described as a young woman, she's described as the slender figure in shadow behind her father, uh-huh. chasing away the suitors. So that's it's the clear, idol that they're remembering. Yes, yeah. yes, that's the image. So she was beautiful she wasn't just a commodity mm. to be traded by her father who's you know hiding his unattractive young it's very it's, it's clear that she was pretty undesirable to men mm. and but that she's i love that image of her being a sh- small fat woman it makes me think of a spider yeah. and mm. like this it's like miss havisham kind of figure yeah. just kind of battening like on the uh 
kind of the, the decay and the dead bodies of the past. Right. I like, I think yeah. that that image is really powerful. And yeah. she's, and she's a fat little woman in black as if she's yes. perpetually mourning. Yeah. yeah. She's got the gold chain descending to her waist, vanishing into her belt. Her skeleton is spare and small and spare so that what would have been merely plumpness in another was obesity in her. She looked bloated like a body long submerged in motionless water. Her eyes lost in the fatty ridges of her face look like two small pieces of coal pressed into a lump of dough. Like this is grotesqueness. This is, yes. um, it's yeah. like, you know. It was so jarring when she appears in the flesh and, and that, dis- that, that sort of disconnect between the way we have been thinking about her and then when she actually appears in the flesh is, is pretty interesting yeah i agree well and it goes to what you 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 pointed out you talked about flannery o'connor a couple times today and that idea what when flannery o'connor talks about her work drawing and the the, the huge crayon figures yeah. right this is the southern gothic genre everything yeah, is yeah. grotesque everything is bigger than life every if it's gross it's grosser than gross if you it's can see beautiful this in a charcoal it's, drawing yes. in a folio book Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I love that there's like this lack of virility in her, right? Huh. Like when we see her as if she's kind of wallowed in inactivity. Uh, <laughs> like the house, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Which that's pretty nice, you know, pretty nice metaphor there. Yeah. Right. If it's a lived in metaphor. Hmm. Youthful promise gone awry. Huh. And you know, you could. There's a lot of stuff you could go into about slavery there. Um, you know what? You, the South, early on in American history, the South had a lot of promise. You know, it was. You look at what Charleston, even now, Charleston, mm-hmm. the Deep South, deep parts of Mississippi, Georgia. I mean, the Carolinas, Virginia. A lot of promise there. But, yeah. but, a, but a promise, but you know, an economic promise that depended on um, an unsustainable system of chattel slavery, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's. I guess that's what I'm saying is there's yeah. promise, but only at such great cost. Yes. And that's like a tragic thing that they couldn't. That that was the only way. Yeah. Um, it's. Well, we haven't right. even talked about the manservant, and I know it's getting late, but man. And that's David. That's the last Confederate. <laughs> he's not the last Confederate. The the, the manservant is, hmm. and he's little. He's literally her Confederate. He's he's making it possible for her to do all this stuff. And then when this is blown open, he walks out the door, and that's the last we see of him. He's he's <laughs> the last. He's the one who sort of you know turns out the lights on his way out the door. Right. Um, the secret keeper. He's, that's, right. He's the key. That's right. He's the keeper of the mysteries. And when the mystery is revealed. He's got no more role here. Yeah, he opens the yeah. door and disappears, walks right up through the house and out the back and was not seen again. Yeah. That's Which is why it couldn't be from his perspective, just because right. then there's a bunch of story after that. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's still so much to talk about in this story. We barely scratched the surface, the issue of time, the linear nature of the narrative, and yet the characters see time is so fluid. Um, it's, I mean, it just, this is a remarkable story. It really, really is. As also Heidi, there's the idea that we discussed with a Rip Van Winkle of, of somebody who the rest of the world moves on with time. And, and this person stays in one yes. place, this un- immovable yes. person who yes. stays in, doesn't change when everything else does. Right. Do, and do her, 
Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say in her one act of revolt against that is murder. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you think that this, that's kind of a um, uniquely American theme that would, that what you're just saying there, Jonathan, or is that just true of all literature? I don't know. Just the idea of, of uh, this conflict between some people not wanting to change and other people changing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess that's I kind of. I mean, that's not that's Don Quixote, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but true. the Americans do well. The Americans do explore that things change have changed very quickly here, whereas in in some of the more ancient cultures, at least ancient Western cultures, time cultural shifts happens very slowly. So it's it. I don't know that it's uniquely American, but there's a uniquely American way of exploring it in American literature. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think, I mean, I think Don Quixote is a huge example of this. That's not American, but I'm trying to think of other, um, other stories that aren't American that, that are doing that. Um, at the moment, nothing's, coming to mind, but I bet in the close reads Facebook group, people can come up with some. Yeah, please do. Storms. Um, surely some Shakespeare play is all about that idea. A lot of- they're at Shakespeare camp, Heidi. Well, they yeah, that's right. The history plays explore that the issue of succession and yeah. changing leadership and how it impacts the culture, but the culture remains the same. It is the leadership that changes. And that is, the, I, yeah, I mean, there really is just a uniquely American way of exploring the fundamental shifts of time in culture, because you can go through it in one generation in a way that hasn't always been possible in some of the more ancient cultures in which communication takes longer. And, you know, it took a long time to get from the center of Rome to the outer reaches of the Roman empire, right? That's not, that wasn't true in for most of American history, you, you could just, you could go through a fundamental like seismic shift in culture in one generation, like Miss Emily did. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it seems like a lot of European literature, like Austin, for example, is how do you as an individual carve out a place in a culture that is what it is? Yes. Um, oh, David, that's in particular really good. for women, you know, or people, mm-hmm. people who are not of certain privileges. Um, whereas a lot of American lit is how do, I mean, part of it is cause it's a wilderness, right? It's born mm-hmm. into wilderness. Um, how do, how do we create culture when things are constantly shifting? How does, how do you, how, how do you, um, like that's what a lot of the Western stories are about, right? You yeah, go yeah. West and then you try to figure out how, what does an establishment of a culture look like when that doesn't exist already or when things are constantly changing, when the next person that comes into town could throw everything that you've done into chaos. Right. Um, those are like two, I mean, there's, those are two different perspectives. Um, yes. Yeah. But they're also both things that are, in a lot of ways, certainly universal experiences. I mean, even if you live, you know, you're in to some degree or another, you experience each of those in some way as a human being. Right. Um, yeah. I like that. And the first thing I thought of was Moby Dick as a quintessentially American novel. The, that like the characters are actually taking on God himself 
right? Like I'm just going to go out and kill God. Like this is the, like this is the American novel. Right? So how do I impose myself upon this, these seismic shifts? How do I, so I, I think. So the American novel insightful. is how do I kill God? What's the English novel? Right? Oh, it's, oh, good question. Yeah. No, how I, do I hide? No. How do I hide from God? Yeah, that, that's maybe so. I am uh, sort of temperamentally opposed to this kind of generalizations about, you know, American stories do this and, and European stories do this, but y'all are making a pretty convincing case, I have to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I am perfectly willing to admit that we're painting and bro- admit that we're painting in broad strokes right now and also probably don't have any idea what we're talking about. At least I don't. Yeah, that's not a possibility. <laughs> yeah. But hey, we yeah. have a podcast mm-hmm. right now and we can that's say right. whatever we want. Right. <laughs> they can have their own podcast if they think something else. <laughs> in fact, a lot of people do. Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. Well, do you guys have any final thoughts on the story? I mean, we talked a lot about kind of literary pedagogy here, but I think that this is an interesting story in which to kind of couch that sort of conversation. So, yeah, this uh, is a framework. great story for teaching. You know, we talked about how Owl Creek Bridge is a great story for teaching. This is even better for teaching, I think. Yeah. I do have one thought. It's, it's not directly related to the story. Um, Heidi, you mentioned uh, going to the Parthenon in Greece. Have you seen ours in Nashville? I have not. Oh, I've not seen the Nashville Parthenon. It's so much better. It's it's not broken. It's, okay. it's it's the same size, but it's not all busted up. You need to come see it. It's amazing. Okay. There's a really good chicken place around the corner. There's a nice park with a lake. Tuesday's <laughs> Orchid Lounge really isn't that far away. It's like the it's the best of both worlds, really. <laughs> An unbroken. Parthenon. And I see this in my future. Not in a city that is economically decayed and probably not worth living in. That's right. Yeah. Who wants to live in Athens, Greece? We got Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, exactly. we, got, you know, we got enough people moving here. Yeah. <laughs> Traffic's bad enough. That's right. Heidi, any final thoughts? I, I can't follow that. I have nothing else to say about a rose for Emily. <laughs> <laughs> You just got silenced by that. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, right. Yeah, planning better. my trip. Now I'm Googling Nashville. So. Oh, yeah. Good. I welcome that. It's a gorgeous <laughs> Parthenon. I don't know why anybody ever goes to Greece. Okay. I do have one thought, and that is we didn't talk about the end at all. So I am. So, and Jonathan, you're, I think it was you, though. It might have been you, David. So I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but somebody brought up the question of, who wins, right? If this is like who, who triumphs in the story. And, um, and so I, I, I'm really interested in hearing listeners thoughts, um, on the Facebook page on this, uh, obviously Miss Emily murdered, uh, her lover, but at the same time, she then lives an empty life alone and so I'm, we didn't talk about that at all. And it's a very ambiguous and I think completely brilliant ending to this story. So um, post your thoughts. I do yeah. love that line. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace. An but, embrace. Now, <laughs> but now the long sleep that outlasts love that conquers even the grimace of love had cuckolded at him. That's, ah. a, that's like Faulkner at his best right there. Is it? the poetry of it and if he would have written i mean he's great at writing long sentences and i'm not like his other books are fairly fantastic in, in a lot of ways but <laughs> that is one of i'm just going to say this that's one of the top 25 sentences in american literature i think right there it's so I think good that's fair 
I have it. I don't have the list of the other ones, so I'm completely <laughs> arbitrary. But um, you know, just yes, throw, I, I'm just gonna throw that out there. How could how could that not be in the top twenty five? Right? Whatever yeah. the top twenty five are, that has to be there. I mean, the way the sentence builds, the body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace. Yeah. But then, then you get the poetry of the long sleep that outlasts love, that mm-hmm. conquers even the grimace of love. And then you get the ending, had cuckolded him. Like it ends yeah. almost abruptly. Yeah. That's and really the use of the word cuckolded is just fun. I know, right? Well, and, and it has the biblical allusion too. Love is as strong as death. Is it though? That's the question he's asking. So it's, yeah, I agree. It's brilliant. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, leaning forward, that faint and invisible dust dry and acrid in the nostrils. We saw a long strand of iron gray hair. I love that he just drops that. Then we noticed in the second pillow. And then the story just ends. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of Poe in that part, I think. Yeah. 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 Heidi, what, there's not even anything to discuss there except just be like, I know. a great sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. So. Well, thank you both for joining me for this um, wide ranging and wandering and <laughs> but fun conversation. It took us far afield, but um, thanks to you both. Next week, uh, Tim McIntosh and Jonathan will be back. I think, I think it's the two what? of you will be back with the, is it you? Um, no, thought- it was supposed to be Matt Bianco, but he's oh, okay. gone. Okay, okay. That's right. That's right. He's gone. Well, anyway, next week, some of us are going to be on here to talk about Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, (laughs) Um, which is another fun and troubling story. So, you know, be prepared. Um, Fun and troubling is like, that's what American Gothic literature in two words, fun and troubling. Um, For Heidi White and for Jonathan Rogers and for the entire Close Reads crew and all of us here at Cersei. I'm David Kern. Uh, Thank you for joining us again here in Close Reads and we look forward to talking to you next week. Mm